Welcome into another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball, where we find the best tools to build the best players. I must have jinxed myself uh, bragging about how hot it's been uh, the last few episodes down here in Sarasota, Florida, um, because as I'm editing this episode, <laughs> I just was over uh, looking outside and, and seeing the wind howling everywhere as it is only 55 degrees right here down here in Florida. I got my sweatshirt on, sweatpants on. Um, I guess everyone needs a little bit of humble pie every once in a while. The coach on the field is a phrase that people in baseball say about the guy behind the dish. The catching position is one that takes an entire episode to really dive into to explain the complexity and responsibility for the hardest working guy on the field. In this episode, we have we bring on Todd Coburn who is better known as the catching guy on social media, who has amassed a huge following online and in person. Todd travels around the country working with catchers from coast to coast. He breaks down the catching position like no other in this episode. We talk about framing pitches, blocking, drills, handling pitchers, building a relationship with the umpire, and about everything else that you can imagine with that position. You can follow Todd on Twitter and Instagram at the Catching Guy. Please make sure to take notes on this episode and share them on social media for others to learn. And also be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, leave a five-star rating, and write a short review. This helps us get the word out about how the show can get better and also how we can reach more coaches, parents, and players. If you want to be a sponsor on the show, please make sure to email me at jonesbaseballtraining at gmail.com. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming on Todd Coburn. All right, Todd, we are now uh, live. Uh, really appreciate you you coming on. Um, if you could give all the listeners a little bit of, of background just kind of on you and how you uh, got to become the catching guy. <laughs> Absolutely. First of all, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. No uh, problem at all. So, yeah, so I think I have a pretty unique story. I always say that I'm a I'm a coach that should have made it as a player and didn't. <laughs> I learned a lot of lessons the hard way. I was the, I was the million dollar arm, but 10 cent head kind of thing. I trained my body a lot, but I didn't train my brain. And, uh, so I became a coach pretty early on. Um, I was doing the college coaching thing after I played, uh, in the Phillies organization briefly. And, uh, about 20 years ago, I got into doing camps, clinics, lessons, coaches, clinics, that kind of stuff. And, in 2006, I started my own camp company after working for other camp companies for several years, and we did all-around skills camps for about, I don't know, a dozen different locations all over northern Nevada, northern California, and then uh, after one of my fall break camps uh, about four years ago now, I was sitting in my office at the end of camp, and I wasn't, uh, I wasn't burnt out, but I was kind of getting almost bored with the same routine over and over and over again, just doing camps and clinics the same uh, for so many years. And I just decided at that point I wanted to, uh, I wanted to switch it up. I wanted to niche down. Um, I, you know, I did several camps, like I said, and my favorite camp of the year was my catching camp that I did over the summer every year. I've always been, I was always a catcher as a player. 
um, coach catchers as a coach have a passion for the position. Uh, there's such a need for help with the position. And, uh, I just started brainstorming in my office by myself. And I'm like, I'm just, I'm just a true passionate catching guy. I just love catching. I'm, I'm, I'm the catching guy. And I thought, huh, that kind of has a little ring to it. So I punched it into social media. No one had it. Uh, so I started a page on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and, uh, started, started posting just all the stuff that I'd always taught over the years, but putting it into, you know, video breakdown mode, uh, uh, format. And, uh, I guess, you know, people started enjoying it and eating it up and loving the information. And next thing you know, I have over a hundred thousand followers and I'm doing camps around the country instead of just, uh, locally here in Northern Nevada. That's, that's incredible. I mean, that's, uh, you know, a testament to not just you, but also social media and how uh, it can have such a positive impact if you use it correctly. So how, how does it work when you, you know, you travel all the time, it seems like anyway, because I do follow you on social media. So do different like facilities reach out to you and that's how you know where you're going to go? Or do you reach out to them and, and want to go certain cities? How does that work? Sure. So first of all, I'll say, you know, when I started this, uh, again, I, I just have, I have a passion for, for teaching the position. Um, and my ultimate goal is to get to as many catchers as I can. Um, which is kind of the reason I started doing coach training as well as if I can get to the coaches, I can get to even more catchers, but, um, that's why I travel so much. Um, and I'm doing, depending on the time of year, I'll do every single weekend of a month. You know, sometimes it's, it's at least one per month, sometimes two. And every once in a while, depending on the time of year, it'll be four events a month. So every weekend I'm going somewhere. And the, again, the reason is I'm just trying to get to as many catchers as I can. I just love helping these guys. There's such a, which is, it's, it's, I think it's in the process of changing. There's a bunch of other catching guys out there now and a whole bunch of them jumping on social media. But at the time when I started, there was such a lack of good, you know, catching coaches that, uh, I just want to help out as many as I could. As, as I could. So when I first started the catching guy, um, like I said, I've been doing camps, clinics, and lessons for about 20 years now. And so I would travel all around the country with uh, a company called America's Baseball Camps and just started making all kinds of connections up in the Northeast, Southeast, um, in the South, in the Midwest, nor- and like all over. I have, I have friends that I either played with, coached with, or did a camp with. And when I first started, I would reach out to them. So I called a buddy in New Jersey, helped run the South Jersey Sand Sharks and said, Hey, if I, if I come out there, can you help me get, you know, a small group of catchers to work with? And he was all about it and we set it up and it went great. Um, called another buddy down in Florida, um, you know, called a couple of buddies in California. And so I started off reaching out to them. And then as my, my following grew and, and the number of events grew and I started to get these, uh, you know, kind of speaking engagements and the brand grew. And now most of the time, not every time, but most of the time people are reaching out to me. There's organizations, whether it be a travel ball organization or just a youth league somewhere around the country, um, they'll reach out to me and see if I'd be willing to come to their neck of the woods and um, help them with their catchers. So started off me reaching out to them. Majority of the time now it's them reaching out to me. So, uh, yeah, and I'm just I'm I'm not stopping anytime soon. My goal is again to keep getting there out to as many places as I can and helping as many catches as I can. How many people usually attend one of those camps? 
When I first started, um, I would try and get as many catches as I could at every event. And we got up to as many as I think my biggest was somewhere around 55 ish catchers at one of my super camps. Um, but that lasted about a year, maybe a year and a half. And then I kind of came to the realization, uh, both to make it easier on me and my staff and more beneficial for the attendees, we started to limit the numbers. So what I typically do is I'll limit it to 12 unless we have a huge amount of interest, which, uh, not every time, but several times it's happened. If we get a huge amount of interest, I'll start a waiting list. And then once I get to six more catchers, I'll bring on an extra staff member and then I'll allow those six in. Um, we had an event in Salt Lake City and had an event in Fort Worth. Uh, we had an event in Atlanta where there's really not anyone doing anything like it in their area. So those blew up and we had, I think, 24 catchers at each of those. So I try and keep my event to six to one ratio, six catchers to one coach. Um, and so we limit it to 12 and I'll go out and do my thing with a helper. But if we have a huge amount of interest, I'll, I'll kind of add six and add six and keep going until we get to 24. But 24 is typically as, as big as we go now, just again, to get as much individualized training. And, and, and it really, again, it makes it kind of easier on the coaching staff and not getting overwhelmed with, you know, groups of eight to 10 and, five different groups rolling through and it's just more manageable with a smaller group. So you said, uh, your staff. So do you bring people with you or how does that all go down? Yeah. You know, I have, uh, it's kind of funny how it's been working out lately. Um, it's, it's challenging to find good catching guys, um, that I would trust teaching, you know, what I, what I teach and in, in our philosophies. Um, so I've had guys over the years that, that have done several events with me um, and worked out great while well, all those guys are getting, they're getting grabbed by organizations and um, they're, they're kind of moving on and doing their own thing. Um, but yeah, I have guys either around the country that, um, you know, I'm coming to their neck of the woods and there it's an easy drive for them to get there. And then if I get to an area where there's no one I know there that they could help me out, I will fly somebody in with me and then, Every once in a while, um, I'll use my, my contact at whatever location I'm going to. They'll, um, they'll find me some, some help as well. So um, I do have my core set of guys that I'll fly around the country with me. Um, and then sometimes they'll drive in and sometimes I use a helper provided by, by the location. Very cool. I, I wish I could help with that, but the fact of the matter is, is I just I don't know anything really about catching except you got to catch the ball, so <laughs> I can't help there. Um, when well, you, by the end of this call, by the end of this call, you'll know more about catching. That's, sure. that's true. Maybe I will be able to by the end of this call. So, when you do one of these uh, camps, like what's the setup? What's the structure like um, for a player who's who's going in to do one of those camps? So what we do is we have a, a pretty wide range of ages. We allow anywhere. So on my, my weekend camps, what I call my big three camps, where we focus on the big three skills of catching, which is receiving, blocking, and throwing. Um, we'll have anywhere from a 10-year-old to 16-year-olds. Um, and then for my super camps, I'll allow even older, and we'll go up to 18-year-olds. And all we do, it's pretty simple. We'll separate the catchers by age. And then they rotate through fundamental skill stations um, with kids their age. And then the coaches just adjust the drill, 
you know, the, the speed of the throws, the challenging, uh, they'll, they'll challenge the older kids and kind of simplify a little bit for the younger kids, just depending on age and skill level. Um, but that's basically it. We have a, a wide range. And I know sometimes there's a question on, you know, why is my 18-year-old going to train with a 10-year-old? Well, that's not how it works. We put, you know, the 18-year-olds with the other 18-year-olds and 17, 16. Sometimes, depending on the number of kids that sign up and the age range gets a little bit off. So we might have like a, a 13 or 14-year-old stuck with the 18s or an 18 stuck with the 14s, just depending on what age, uh, you know, how many of each age sign up. But uh, typically it works out where we just have all the young ones training with the young ones, uh, the mid-range kind of juniors uh, working with juniors, and then the advanced high school and above uh, training with each other. Gotcha. That, that makes makes sense to me. Um, so when we talk about catching, obviously, you know, framing is a big thing these days and uh, completely understand why. But let's start out with just calling the game behind the plate. So how do you work with uh, catchers or teach them the proper way to, to just call a game behind the plate? Well, so I can tell you at my at my events, pitch calling uh, could be literally a, a – probably an hour or two kind of lecture format. Um, and it, it could be its own, it's its own animal. There's so much that goes into it. So we typically don't cover pitch calling at my events, but if I have a, a catcher that I'm doing some one-on-one work with, um, and they've told me that their coach is allowing them to call their own game, then, then we work on it, but it's not typically something we cover even at my super camps. Um, and honestly, a, a big part of that is probably, 75, 80% of the time, coaches are calling the pitches, which I don't 100% agree with. I really am a firm believer in teaching your young catchers how to set up hitters and pitch sequencing and, and, and how to, you know, get them out. But um, I understand the coach's philosophies on it. If we're going to lose, I want it to be on me, not because my catcher called the wrong pitch sort of thing. So um, just wanted to say that first. But on the pitch calling side of things, there's there's – a whole bunch of different factors that, that come into play. Um, I think first and foremost, we always need to stick with our pitcher's strength. Um, you know, some throw heat, and so that's their strength. Some have a great breaking ball or a really dirty changeup, and that's their strength. Um, but our ultimate goal is to have our pitcher have 100% confidence in what they're throwing. Um, so when, it all, when all else fails, Stick with your pitcher's strength. If, if you're in a situation where you're not quite sure what to call, throw that fastball if that's their, their go-to pitch, if they have really good velocity, or throw that dirty curveball or changeup if, if that's their, their best pitch because you want them to be 100% confident what they're throwing, which actually, now that I think about it, kind of brings up a whole other point. Um, one thing I think catchers out there need to realize is what we're giving with the sign we give, unless it's coming from coach, the sign we give is, is really more of a suggestion than anything. Yeah, I really think if you throw this pitch, we can get this guy out. But if you throw down a curveball and the pitch is out there on the mountain, uh, I don't want to throw this curveball. It's not feeling good today for whatever reason, or, you know, they don't have, they have any doubt in their mind. It's probably not going to end well. So we need to allow our pitchers to shake off when when needed now there will be instances where you're you know as a catcher you're pretty adamant about the pitch that you want thrown and so you give the sign he says no you give the sign again letting him know no i want you to throw this 
then you know sometimes we'll we'll make them kind of throw what we want but most of the time it's it's uh it's a suggestion and again it all comes back to the pitcher having confidence in in what they're throwing um so again that's that's number one in pitch calling is just make sure you're going with your pitcher's strength um, when at all possible um the other thing to take into consideration is the uh, hitter's weakness or hitter's tendencies you know some guys are fastball hitters some guys are off-speed hitters. Some guys are high ball hitters. Some guys are low ball hitters. Um, so the cool thing is, or I guess the, the bonus is, is when the, the hitter's weakness goes along with the pitcher's strength. So if you have someone who has a slow bat and you have a pitcher that's throwing hard, you can just blow it by the guy all day long. But again, it's just another factor to take into consideration is what is the hitter's weaknesses. And, and if it plays into the pitcher's strength, even better. Um, one thing, Another factor, and I think one thing to really take into consideration is the hitter's reaction to the previous pitch. Um, and the way I explain that to the catchers is, you know, if you throw a fastball that's it's on the inside part of the plate, it's not even in off the plate, it's this inside part of the plate that's not even on the black, but the hitter, like, jumps back out of the way, I think that's an obvious sign that they don't like the ball thrown in. They don't like hard in. Um, so how they react to that inside fastball can say, okay, he looks scared. He looks like he wants nothing to do with that inside fastball. So let's just bust him on the knuckles all game long and stay inside until he shows us he can hit it kind of thing. Um, and then on the other side of that, if, if you call, you know, a fastball away or off speed away, whatever it is, and it's not even off the plate, it's still over the outside part of the plate, but the hitter kind of leans forward and looks and watches it. The umpire calls it a strike and the hitter gets upset because they thought it was outside then they obviously don't like to pitch away. So we can, we can, we should be able to get them out of way. So just paying attention to the, how the hitter reacts to the previous pitch will kind of tell you what to call next. Um, That's a great, great point right there. Uh, kind of just paying it, making sure you're paying attention to what's going on during the actual game. Right. So, I mean, like you just said, how a hitter t- uh, takes a pitch, you know, just little things like that yet really add up where you always have to be paying attention, it seems like, behind the dish. Um, and that's going to help you. That's going to help determine, you know, where you set up, what pitch is called, and, and things like that. 100%. And that kind of leads into the next point. Another factor to take into consideration is, is your game situation. So, um, you know, not necessarily at the lower levels, but sometimes they do defensive shifts. So if you have your defense set up in a certain place, you want to pitch to that into the defense to try and force a guy to pull the ball or force a guy to hit it the other way or whatever. So that game situation would dictate what we call as well. Sometimes, um, you know, batter, the, the runner location where the base runners are, you want to get a specific outcome on that hit. So that's going to dictate what pitch you call. Um, and then there's instances where, you know, not so much at the lower levels, but the higher levels, high school and above, um, you'll talk before the game with scouting reports. All right. You know, we could use Mike Trout for an example. All right, Mike Trout's batting third. We don't want him to beat us. So that's going to dictate. We don't want this best hitter to beat us. So we're going to make sure he's either going to chase a ball in the dirt or we're going to walk him. He is not going to beat us. So that will sometimes be the factor that dictates what pitch we call. So game situation is another huge factor. What about establishing a a relationship with the guy behind the plate, the, the umpire? Yeah, you know what? Um, that's a great point. And that kind of is another one of the factors that I was going to discuss is, 
the location and then success and failure of the pitch you just called and what the umpire has given you. So that's a great point. If, if I call a, a breaking ball away and it ends up being, you know, one to two, maybe even three balls off the plate and my catcher, you know, does his mitt magic and snaps it back and gets the call. That's a pitch that most guys can't hit and definitely can't hit hard if it's off the plate that far. So if the umpire is going to give us that call, why not just keep throwing it out there and see how much they'll give us off the plate. So um, the umpire's strike zone will definitely have an impact on what we call. Do you teach the your catchers to uh, kind of really they'll establish a relationship with that umpire um, throughout the game? 100%. That's something we talk about at every event is I encourage them to do um, really three things. Number one, first time out on defense, uh, introduce yourself to the umpire, to the home plate umpire. Um, shake their hand if they allow it. Sometimes some umpires don't want to do a handshake because they don't want the other team to see them shaking the catcher's hand of the other team. So some umpires will kind of resist the handshake, but you can still introduce yourself. Do your best to learn their first name. You know, um, some umpires could care less, but most don't want to be called ump or blue all game line. You want to learn their first name, get on a first name basis with them. Um, number two, um, use their first name throughout the game. So if you receive a pitch that you thought was a strike and they call the ball, um, you're not going to show them up, spin around and stare at them and throw your hands up. You're going to talk to them. Where'd you have that, Bob? And he'll say, I had it low. And you say, okay, man, I thought that was a good pitch, but I just, I just want to be on the same page with you. So discuss respectfully during the game. And then at the end of the game, now this depends on the level you play at. If you're playing in a tournament, and, you know, you only go to the tournament once a year, you may not see that umpire ever again. But if you're at the high school level, um, a lot of times you see the same umpires throughout the season, definitely at the collegiate level, um, you know, and beyond sometimes professional. But if it's an umpire you're going to see again at the end of the game, even if they didn't have the best game, you're still going to turn around. If you're on defense for that last out, you're going to turn around and say thank you to the umpire. Hey, thanks, Bob. Great game. Um, you know, so you introduce, respectfully discuss stuff throughout the game, um, be on a first-name basis, and then thank them at the end. And uh, I'm sure any umpires that end up listening to this, this podcast, this talk, are going to agree that, you know, developing that relationship with them can have a huge impact on your, your pitcher success and in turn your team success for sure. I guess the other thing that, uh, that could help you as well is you establish that relationship with him when you're behind the dish and then you get up to the plate yourself, right? Maybe he does give you a, a pitch that you, you take that's kind of borderline. Maybe he gives that a ball instead of a strike because, again, you've established that relationship because the human element will always be there. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I, I would actually probably assume that most umpires would disagree with that and say it doesn't happen. But in my experience, I think it 100% does. If if the opposing team's catcher has been disrespectful, showing up the umpire, um, you know, not taking care of them when they get hit by a foul ball and, and calling timeout and giving the umpire break, all that kind of stuff. But your catcher has been developing that relationship, staying positive with them, being respectful. I think it could definitely have a huge impact on your bats as well. So, again, I don't think the umpires would want to admit that, but it's definitely a, uh, something that comes into play for sure. <laughs> So another way to, to kind of get, get some more strikes, right, is is pitch framing, and that's become a really big uh, topic. That is something I do see a lot 
um, online and, and just watching just a lot of baseball in general, even just when it's on TV. So what are some ways that catchers out there can really work on stealing some strikes uh, for their pitchers? So it's definitely, uh, I've, I've explained it this way in, the, in my previous talks, um, that the game is evolving, in particular the position of catcher is evolving, and in particular, even more specific, the, the skill of receiving is evolving. Um, and it's, it's still a very debated topic. But I think the majority of coaches are finally starting to buy into the new techniques that they're teaching. Um, back in my day, uh, it was stick it, stick the pitch, um, minimize movement, make as little movement as possible, just receive the pitch, hold it there, and let the umpire decide if it's, if it's a strike or not. Well, what they found, um, and it's literally been over the last, I don't know, three, maybe four years, maybe five years, but with all the video analysis and data and analytics and number and being able to quantify the different skills that catchers perform, they found that moving the ball is getting more strikes. Um, I think that the Dodgers uh, organization might have been kind of the catalyst in this, um, you know, talking with their catching coordinator, Ryan Sienko, awesome guy, awesome catching guy. Um, you know, you watch uh, three seasons ago or whatever, Austin Barnes and Russell Martin and Yasmani Grandal moving the ball like it's the pitch is out of the strike zone, but they receive it and lift it all in one, you know, quick motion. And when you talk to Ryan, he'll tell you, hey, when our catchers stick that borderline pitch, sometimes we call it a straball. When they stick that straball, they're only getting a strike call like 20% of the time. My numbers aren't going to be exact, but you get the point. But they'll get a strike call like 20% of the time. And then when our catchers are receiving and moving it, they're getting a strike call 30% of the time. Even if it was 20% up to 22%, 22 is higher than 20, so you're getting more strikes. So why would you not do it that way? You know what I mean? Um, so if, if there's a new technique that's going to help your pitchers get more strikes, which is in turn going to help your team get more wins, why would you not do it? So, um, again, what they're starting to do is, is those borderline pitches, the one to two baseballs out of the strike zone, the catchers are receiving it and moving it back toward the strike zone. And when the timing is right, when done correctly, there's, like you put it, stealing a lot of strikes. They're, they're definitely balls. You watch on TV, they're out of that strike zone, but they're getting the strike call because of the, the techniques they're using. Um, go ahead. So what type of specifically, what type of techniques are they using? Like what can someone out there listening kind of do to help get those strikes? So I, I have what I call my big three of receiving the three most important, uh, important components to being a good receiver. Number one is going to be timing. We have to be on time. Um, and what, you know, again, what they used to teach is you need to beat the ball to the spot it's going to. So your mid is still when the ball goes in and then you stick it. Well, now what we want to do is we want to, you still want to beat it, but ideally you want to get past where the pitch is going. So your mitt can be moving back toward the strike zone as the ball goes in. So if it's a low pitch, um, you'll notice that most big league catchers, not all, but most, are putting their mitt on the ground. They're actually literally starting it on the ground or they're, they're giving the target. Then they're lowering their mitt to the ground as the pitcher lets go. 
And then if the pitch is low, their mitt is moving up toward the strike zone as the ball goes in the mitt. And, and they're, they're kind of meeting it on the way to the middle of the strike zone. So they, they got to get below the low pitch. They got to get above the high pitch. So if there's a pitch up at the, the catcher's face, um, that's still the top of the strike zone. So what they want to do, let's say the pitch is somewhere around the, the catcher's like nose or chin. The catcher wants to get their mitt to about forehead height and then be moving the mitt down as the ball goes in. So their mitt's moving toward the strike zone. And then, of course, pitches on the edges, they want to get around them and then be moving the mitt back toward the strike zone as the ball goes in. So we just we want to beat the ball to where it's going, get around it, and be working our way back to it. So being on time is, is critical to, to stealing these strikes, these borderline calls and getting those strike calls. Um, and then I always put it this way, the best way to be on time is to be relaxed. A relaxed body is a quick body. A tense body is a slow body. So, again, that's why you see a lot of catchers, they'll just rest their mitt on the ground. Their arm and their hand is completely relaxed and on the ground. Some still do what we call like an open mitt technique or open pocket. They'll open the pocket to the pitcher and just keep it there. Um, But in particular, in my experience, especially at the lower levels, the pitcher's not always hitting their spot. Like in the big leagues, the pitchers will be relatively close to the location they want. Um, at the lower levels, which I work with a lot, um, you know, in the big leagues, maybe six to seven pitches are pretty darn close to where they want them to go. In little league and in that age group, they might have two or three pitches that are near where they want. The rest are all over the place. So um, it's just essential for the catcher to relax. They can't give that open pocket technique and have a stiff wrist and a stiff forearm and a stiff shoulder. They want to relax the muscles so they can adjust the pitches that are away from where they're expecting them. So that open mitt technique is an ideal um, when you have a pitcher that's kind of, you know, you're set up in and they throw it away, but it's still a strike. You have to be quick to get over there to get that strike call. So um, again, kind of to go back and answer your question, uh, ways to steal strikes is number one, be on time. And the way we're on time is relax. Um, the second thing, we've already discussed this in detail. The second thing on my big three list is go ahead and move the ball. We're not sticking the ball anymore. Um, I just posted about this uh, middle of last week. Even pitches that are in the strike zone, we still want to move those a little bit because umpires will start to pick up on if, if this catcher sticks it because it's in the strike zone, then it must be a strike. If the catcher moved it when it's out of the strike zone, it must be a ball. So if we move it every time it's out of the zone, and we stick it every time it's in the zone, it looks different to the umpire. We want it to look the same, which is number three of my big three is, is give the umpire a consistent look. So even if it's in the strike zone, I'm still, you know, let's say it's at the bottom of the strike zone, I'm going to receive it and lift it a little all at the same time. If it's on one of the edges, even if it's already in the strike zone, I'm going to receive it and kind of move it, pull it or push it toward the middle of the strike zone every single time. So they're constantly getting, uh, a slight movement with the mitt, sometimes more than others, depending on pitch location and our timing. But we want to give the umpire a consistent look with both our mitt position and the movements we make. Uh, so, I guess, Todd, that's, yeah. Todd, that's that's awesome. Okay, where you where you finished? Keep going. Yeah, I was just going to re- basically review what we just said. So, so my big three is is um, you know number one, be on time. You have to be relaxed to be on time. Number two is go ahead and move the ball. Some coaches call it manipulate the mitt. Some call it manipulate the ball, move the ball, whatever you want to call it. We're going to move. 
and then number three is give the umpire a consistent look. And if we can do those three things, uh, you know, consistently, we're going to get a lot of strike calls. That's awesome, awesome content right there. Uh, great stuff. You know, as you were saying that, one of the things that I started thinking about was, man, isn't it going to become obvious to the umpire if you're always if you're only moving pitches that are borderline, and then you literally answered that by talking about how you always want to be consistent in moving it. So that's a, literally that exact thing where the umpire doesn't um, doesn't recognize it only on borderline pitches um, becomes apparent. So that's that was great, great stuff. Yeah, that actually so, that, that brings up that brings up a whole one of the biggest uh, um, arguments against everything I just explained is, and I'll get this on my social media. I'll do a post about moving the ball, and then someone it never fails. Someone will get on there and say, and that's why ro- robo umps are coming. That's why there's going to be an electronic strike zone. And that may have a lot to do with it. And, you know, people will argue, man, that's just bad umpiring. And I always come back with, is it bad umpiring or really good catching? <laughs> the catchers are getting, yeah, the catchers are getting so good at manipulating the ball when it's done on time and it's done correctly, the umpire literally cannot see it. That's why I call it mitt magic. It's like the catchers are performing <laughs> magic tricks. Um, and, yeah, so – and we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get there, so to speak. If they do end up coming up with robo-umps and, and electronic strike zones and all that kind of stuff, obviously it's going to change the receiving. Um, but until that actually happens, uh, we'll, you know, us catching guys are going to continue to teach what we're teaching and, and help us help our pitchers and team out as much as we can. What, what do you think about the automated strike zones? Um, yeah, you can call me old school. You can call me a traditionalist. I don't like any of the changes that they're coming up with, man. It's been an awesome game. The best game ever made in my opinion. Um, I mean, I didn't even like when they came out with instant replay. I love the human component to it and the the arguing with the umpires and, and, you know, coaches sticking up for their team and getting thrown out again. Like that's always been part of the game. Um, I love the human element of it. You know, we make mistakes. The umpires make mistakes. It's always been part of the game. So, again, call me old school, but I don't like instant replay. I don't like, you know, um, now they're about to come out with some new pickoff rule. The pitcher has to step off. They're coming out with, again, the robo-umps potentially. Um, What was one of the other silly ones that they did? Like the batter can steal first base if the catcher misses the ball. Like they're coming up with all this new stuff. In my opinion, forget about it. Keep a great game of baseball how it always has been, and quit switching everything up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can definitely, I can definitely understand that. I do agree. There is uh, some part of the game that is really fun to watch because of the unknown, right? Because of the, the guy behind the dish. Um, moving along, um, going from now what we just talked about pitch framing to now blocking. Um, I was watching a video this morning of someone who says, you know, you really want to block with your belly button and how he, what he was teaching players is to, to have some sort of protection right around um, your, your, belt bu- your belt buckle up to right around your belly button and then cut it off from there um, to teach young catchers to block with their belly button. Now, obviously, it wouldn't be coming in very hard, Um what are your thoughts on different drills or just how you like to teach uh, catchers blocking the baseball? So I, I have, again, I have my big three. I, I, 
explained this several times in, in past talks and stuff. So I have my big three of blocking, just like I have my big three of receiving. With the blocking side of things, um, now keep in mind, and this actually, this rule still applies even at higher levels, but in particular with the youth catchers, the number one most important thing with blocking is mindset. You have to have a, a catcher that has no fear. Um, you have to have a catcher that understands, I could do this correctly, be on time, be in great position, and the ball still hits somewhere where there's no padding. <laughs> they have to go into it understanding that this is probably going to hurt. Um, sometimes when done correctly, it doesn't. But you have to get catchers that are comfortable being uncomfortable. They have to be comfortable with pain. Um, you know, and I explain it this way all the time. Human instinct says when something's flying at you, it's a duck, bob, we get out of the way. We catchers have to go against those the human instinct of moving and jump in the way um, with the understanding that it might hurt. So mindset is, is by far number one, most important thing. Um, the other component of mindset is just making sure, you know, they're, they're always expecting it to be in the dirt. If, if we're expecting the pitch to be in the strike zone and the pitcher bounces it, our reaction time is going to be slower and our movements will be slower. But if we're expecting them to bounce it, we'll react quicker when we recognize it and will actually move quicker as well. So mindset is super important. And then you actually said it exactly how I teach it. Um, that number two is going to be catch it with your belly button. So if we can make it hit us somewhere near our belly button, that's going to give us our best ball control. Um, and there's actually a couple different techniques or methods we'll use uh, when blocking to ensure it hits us in the belly button. So sometimes the pitcher throws it really close to us where it's almost catchable, so if the pitch is almost catchable, but it's not, and I'm going to block, I need to drop straight down. So coaches will call it the drop or replace method. And replace just means they're going to replace their feet with their knees. So they kick their feet out, drop their knees straight down, and that's going to give them the best opportunity to have the ball hit them in the belly button. If the pitcher throws the pitch shorter, so out toward home plate somewhere, or maybe even in front of home plate, they're going to fold. Some coaches call it attack the ball and they're going to come forward slightly so their feet instead of their feet kicking back their feet stay put and their knees fold forward so they're cutting down the distance between where the ball hits the ground and where they're putting their body and again the ultimate goal is that's going to give them the best opportunity to have the ball hit them in the belly button so sometimes we fold sometimes we replace but do whatever you got to do to make it hit you in the belly button and then the third of the big three is once we're down in blocking position our, our body position and posture will have a huge impact on our success. So um, before I get into those details, I'll say this. There's, there's textbook form, what you, you really want to look like, and then there's the reality of blocking. And I think most catching coaches and coaches out there would agree, we don't care how ugly it looks, just stop the ball from getting by. You can get, get, get the ball to hit you somewhere on your body, in your mid, in your leg, in your arm, in your chest, and keep it close. That's all that, that matters. So it doesn't have to be pretty. But the more consistently we can get to a textbook or ideal blocking form, the more consistent blocks we're going to have, the more ball control we'll have, um, and the ability to keep it close and throw out any runners trying to advance. So ideally what we want is once we're down, we want our knees wide, our mitt covering the five hole, so the area between our legs. Um, we don't want our butt to be touching the back of our legs or touching our knee savers. We want our butt to be up a little bit, kind of hovering, so we can get our body over the top of the ball. Um, so that would be our posture. And then the posture is going to change slightly depending on the depth of the pitch. So if the pitcher throws it 
where it's almost catchable and we use that replace technique to drop. We want our chest way over the top of the ball, um, literally like parallel to the ground is going to help keep it close. If the pitcher throws it really short, so out by home plate or in front of home plate, the ball typically bounces higher. So we want our posture, our body position to be more upright. So the ball has more chance to hit us. So again, my big three of blocking are mindset. You have no fear and always expect. Number two is going to be what transition do we use to catch it with our belly button? Sometimes we drop, sometimes we fold. And then once we're down, how do we look? Knees wide, hips back, chest over the top, um, mitt blocking the five-hole, and then just adjust according to the depth of the pitch. That's a great, great uh, explanation, um, and that's a very good way of putting it all. While you were kind of saying that, it made me realize that's exactly why I never could catch because of the fear of just the ball literally coming at me. <laughs> you know, that's I, I call it the difference maker. I say that all the time at my camps, at my events. Blocking is the difference maker. Everybody thinks they can be a catcher until they have to block, and then you get smoked in the wrist, you get smoked in the bicep, the point of your shoulder, the ball hits somewhere where there's no padding. And that usually changes everyone's mind. It takes definitely takes a unique personality to be able to deal with uh, the discomfort of blocking. And uh, when you find someone who's comfortable with the ball hitting them, that's that's going to be a, a successful catcher because you it's uh, you got to have no fear. So in a sense, it's really more more than anything, um, like you just said, a mindset. There is no one or two specific drills that really help it or technique per se. It's really just if I literally. I'm going to block this ball. I mentally have to tell myself, like, I will do whatever it takes to keep it in front of me. Yep, that's the mindset we need. And if we don't have that mindset, you're probably not going to have much of a, a future at catcher. <laughs> is it is it a little bit tougher to block balls if if your one of your knees is already down? Like I know that's become a pretty big thing. If a right-handed hitter's up and my left knee is is already on the ground, um, does that make it more challenging, or are you is it easier? Well, so, so here's the deal with that, because that's a pretty debatable topic as well. Um, you'll notice that a lot of the big league catchers now um, are, are setting up on one knee, even with runners on base. I mean, like J.T. Romuto, there was instances last season where it was like the seventh or eighth inning in a one-run game or a tie ball game, runner at third, and he's setting up on one knee. Um, so the reasoning behind it is this. In the big leagues, it depends on the organization and the team and the pitcher, but the average number of balls in the dirt in the big leagues per game is like four to six. I checked with uh, a friend of mine that was with the Phillies and now he's switched to the Cubs, but I asked him about mid season last year, what are your guys' average number of balls in the dirt per game? And they were at like 3.8. So, and then the other thing to take into consideration is in the big leagues, when they do in fact bounce a pitch, which is really rare because they're, they're throwing, you know, 100, 120, sometimes 150 pitches in a game, depending on how the game's going, and they're only bouncing four of them, it just makes more sense to be prepared to catch the pitch because that's what you're going to do majority of the time versus block. And then in the big leagues, when they do, in fact, bounce one, majority of those are somewhere what they call in the box. It's like right to the catcher. So if I'm set up on a knee and the pitcher bounces it right in front of me, I'm already down. So it makes it really easy. I just turn my mid over and let it hit me in the belly. The, the challenging thing is at the lower levels, and I think every level you go down, the number of balls in the dirt goes up, and the number of balls in the dirt that are on, on the side, so laterally, outside of the box, we could call it, 
those go up as well. So big leagues, it's, you know, anywhere from four to six balls in the dirt per game. In the minor leagues, it's probably somewhere around there, maybe a little more, like six to eight. You get to college, depending on the level, it could be, you know, eight to ten. You get start to get into youth league, and, man, depending on the, the level and the organization and the, and the team, you could have anywhere from, you know, 15 to 20 balls in the dirt. And, again, half of those, instead of right at the catcher, they're in the other batter's box. So um, I guess my point is, depending on the pitcher and the level that you're playing, sometimes being on one knee actually helps blocking. They'll be more successful um, because you're already down. One of the biggest faults you'll see with blocking is the catcher's late getting down. Well, if I'm on one knee, I'm already down there, so I can't be late. It makes it a lot easier. But to move laterally, that's where the challenge comes in. And, uh, you know, the, the one knee setup, they'll do it. They have variations of it depending on game situation. So if there's nobody on base, there's less than two strikes on the batter, you'll see JT Romuto, you know, kick his leg out to the side and basically sit on his left leg that's down and flat. So he'll sit all the way down. But if there's a runner on, he'll do more of what we call like a modified kickstand stance. So he'll have his right foot is actually flat on the ground with his legs still sticking out to the side but he's got his foot flat on the ground. So if he needs to push to block or push to get up to throw, he can do it. Um, so there's different, you know, modifications or variations of the one you set up depending on game situation. So um, I guess to, again, to go back to your question, yes, it can make it easier depending on the level that you're playing. I wouldn't, and I say this at my camps all the time. I say, guys, if there's nobody on, nobody out, you want to rest on one knee and you want to work on, you know, stealing that low strike and getting underneath the ball um, and underneath the pitch, then go for it. But if you have the sixth inning, one-run ball game, runner at third, um, I highly recommend you get up into a good secondary. So if your pitcher throws some crazy pitch in the outside batter's box, you have more of an opportunity to, to block it. Okay, so that was going to be my next question, the, the real reasoning behind being down on one knee. So it is to steal the low strike. Yeah, there's actually several different benefits to it, I think. And, and by the way, so um, people see uh, so many catchers sitting up on one knee and like, oh, this new one knee setup. Well, it's not new. I, I posted a video not too long ago of Nolan Ryan throwing in the um, late 70s, uh, maybe even mid-70s, and his catcher was set up on one knee like every pitch as well. So the one knee setup's been around for a long time, but I think back then it was probably more of a comfort thing more than anything, kind of energy conservation. Um, but what they found nowadays is, you know, setting down, sometimes they'll set down the knee um, on the batter side. So if there's a right-handed batter up, they'll set their left knee down because the umpire is going to be over the catcher's left shoulder. So it kind of opens up the view um, of the strike zone for the umpire. Um, sometimes they'll set the knee down, and, and I think this is probably more common, they'll set the knee down on the uh, side where it's like anticipated pitch location. Um, because what it'll do is it kind of takes away a low strike reference point. So if I'm in a traditional setup with both feet on the ground and both knees up and I receive a pitch below my knees, the umpire is looking right over my shoulder. He can see that. So especially if I don't lift that pitch or if my timing's off and they see it's below my knees, they're going to call it a ball. But if I set that knee down, kind of takes away that low strike reference point. Now I can get pitches that are literally two to three baseballs low below the strike zone. They're shin high on the batter. I have my mid on the ground and my knee out of the way and I snap it up 
I get a lot of those low pitches called strikes because I took away that low strike reference point. Um, another reason I'll set the knee down is, is in particular with the left knee down, that kind of gives you more freedom of movement with that receiving arm. Um, you don't get caught up, you know, having to go up and over your knee or you don't even have to move the knee down to, to adjust to the pitch. It's already down and out of the way. Um, you know, sometimes it's uh, just, again, a comfort thing. Um, guys like, well, JT Romuto, he's, I don't know if I've ever actually seen him set his right knee down. It's almost always left knee for Romuto. That's his comfort. Um, then you have guys like Tyler Flowers, which sometimes it's his right knee, sometimes it's his left knee. Sometimes both knees will kind of fold to the ground, depending on pitch location. Um, Austin Hedges, who led the world with, uh, in receiving last year with, with the receiving runs. Um, he, he sometimes is left knee, sometimes is right knee. And it, it, again, it's a game situation, um, pitch, lo- anticipated pitch location, batter location, umpire location, all that stuff starts to come into play. Awesome. That's awesome. Awesome. Awesome information. Um, had no idea on a lot of that stuff. I, I love the little, um, little just, uh, clues and reasoning, reasoning behind, you know, all the benefits of having one knee down. Now, yeah. the next thing that I, uh, I kind of, I, I have a lot of different things I wanted to, to talk to you. I had questions I wanted to ha- ask, um, cause we had a few people, uh, DM and wanted some questions asked is sure. calling is putting down signs. So runners don't see them because that's another thing where guys will be on base or, or just even a hitter who's at the plate will want to know, will you know, kind of take a peek back there and see what signs are, are being put down. Do you teach hitters uh, a way to combat that at all? Uh, teach the catchers for sure. I mean, so, catchers. Sorry, catchers. Yeah, no, I know. I know what you meant. Um, so here's here's my thing, and you know, obviously with all the the Astros debacle going on right now, um, I will say this first: um, stealing signs has always been part of the game. Um, it always will be, in my opinion. It's not against the rules. It's not disrespectful. It's not unsportsmanlike. It's always been part of the game. And so nowadays, I think when you take it to the level that the Astros did and starting to use technology, um, I can't remember who said it not too long ago, but the, the thing with the Astros, this poor team, they, they got caught. I think there's other teams doing it. It's just the Astros got caught. I think the, the way that they did it, they made it so obvious that again, they got caught. So um, I'm sure there's probably other teams that were using technology and they're probably going to stop doing it. So they don't go through the same thing the Astros are right now. Um, but with all that said, if the catcher would just give a series of signs every time, I think that could alleviate a lot of the problem. And one of the things that they're saying that the, the Astros had done is they got some some guy that's way smarter than me developed some algorithm and computer program that even if the catcher was giving a series, they could still figure out what was coming somehow. I'm not sure how that all works. Again, the guy's way smarter than me. Um, so I guess there is still a way to try and steal signs, but I think if they just give a series of signs, like three to four signs every single time, whether there's a runner on base, no runner on base, runner on first, runner on second, base is loaded, just give a series of signs every time, that should help alleviate the problem of, signs being stolen. So um, we have to make sure, obviously, we don't get into uh, patterns and use the same set of signs over and over again. So, you know, uh, 
and, and, and depending on the team and the level, like at the lower levels, the catcher can probably just give one sign and it's not going to matter. But if you get the high school and beyond, giving a series, you'll give a pitch type that you want, and you'll also have a location. Most, most coaches have zones, and they want to pitch up and in or down and away or down the middle or low and in, whatever. So they'll give, you know, number one fastball, number three is the next number they give, then a four and a wiggle. So one, three, four, you know, whatever it is, the one meant fastball, the three meant down and in, and then the other were just kind of, you know, decoy signs. They don't mean anything, but they're just extra signs thrown in there. And then the next time, you know, uh, there's, there's so many, it's hard to explain because there's so many variations you can use. Sometimes it's the sign after two. Sometimes it's the sign, you know, uh, for example, um, one of the teams I played with, I won't say the names in case they're still doing it, but the number we put down didn't mean anything. It was the number of signs we gave. So if I gave three signs, you know, three and five signs meant fastball. So I could go three, two, wiggle, three. I didn't even give a number one anywhere in there because number one is kind of the universal sign for fastball, but they still throw a fastball because the number of times I put down, it's called a pump system. So the number of pumps dictates what, what pitch is going to be thrown. Um, and then we, the catcher would just kind of give a location with their hand. So again, kind of I'm jumping back and forth on topics here because there's so many different routes I could take. I think the main thing to help alleviate the problem of signs being stolen is continually mix up your signs and give a series of signs every time instead of just getting lazy and just giving the number one and then giving the number two just one time. Do a series of signs every time, and that should help. I feel like there should it should never really be an issue of, of signs being stolen. I mean, like like you just explained, there's so many ways to go about it. If you ever just put down one sign, I mean, you honestly deserve to get your sign stolen. One hundred percent. I mean, I, I tell this all the time in my camps. When I was coaching in college, I coached a lot of first base, and obviously, we all know there's a coach's box where the coach is supposed to stand. I was never in that box. I would get as close to the foul line as I could, especially if we had a runner on. I'd go up and, you know, pat him on the butt, say, great hit, pick up your sign. All right, we got one out, you know, freezing a line drive, got to go hard on the ground. And I would be talking to him and start to back up toward the coach's box. And then I would stop as close as I could. And I would look in at the catcher. And if the catcher had his legs open and was only given one sign, I would relay a verbal sign to my batter, letting him know what's coming. Um, it's the same kind of thing that, that happens with a runner at second base. If they're just given one, the runner can see he's going to give some kind of, you know, maybe not a verbal, but he's going to step in one direction or the other or turn his head one direction or the other to tell him, you know, either location and or pitch. So, um, yeah, just give a series, <clears throat> give a series, shield your signs correctly. We go over stances. It's actually the first thing we go over at all my events. We go over stances and setups first and foremost, and we talk about the sign giving stance. And, and how to help alleviate the problem of signs being stolen. So um, there's definitely ways around it. I think some guys just get, I don't know, if, I don't know if lazy is the right word. They just get, uh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the word right now, but they just, they, they don't, you know, focus and understand that this stuff is going on. We need to do something different. And, and a lot of teams, I think at the collegiate level, man, those guys have, uh, flip cards and they have, all right, in the first inning, this is the signs we're using. In the second inning, this is the signs we're using. Some coaches will even have, all right, in the first inning, when there's no outs, these are the signs. When there's one out, 
this is the sign. When there's two outs, these are the signs. Like it switches constantly. It can get a little bit over the top, so to speak, um, and, and can be challenging depending on the <laughs> the mindset of the catcher and, and the pitcher. But um, to help alleviate the you know, problem of the batter knowing what's coming, you do what you got to do. Well, I wonder if the other reason is, too, is you start to putting down all these different signs and, and pumps and things like that at times. Maybe the, the pitcher just gets uh, so bent out of shape that he's he gets confused and, you know, the only thing he wants to do is just throw the ball. He doesn't want to think or anything. He literally just wants to throw the ball. So maybe that's another reason why. Yeah, it definitely depends on the personality of that pitcher. Um, and sometimes you have to simplify for some of them. But again, if you if you practice it constant, just like anything else, you got to practice it. Um, they should it should become second nature to them, and there's there's no you know there's no confusion. Um, and and definitely there's a technique to giving signs as well, so it's not confusing to the pitcher. If you're doing pumps and you go ridiculously fast, um, or you're giving a or you're giving a series of signs, but you kind of turn your hand or curl your fingers underneath your crotch they can't see then it's going to get confusing there's going to be a lot of cross-ups but if you do a, a steady tempo make sure you're pointing your hand you know your fingers straight down and your hands in the correct place you know it shouldn't be a problem and then sometimes you'll have and i ran into this when i was catching when i was playing you have a pitcher that can't really see your hand between your legs so then you just do body taps so you touch your chest means something you touch your right knee means something left knee you touch your mask you just do kind of tap body taps and that can be the sign. So you still get the signs between your legs, but you do body taps before or after, and then the other team doesn't know if it's the signs you're giving between your legs that are hot or the signs that you're giving when you do your body taps that are hot. But you just mix it up and, uh, again, make sure your pitcher's on the same page. What advice would you give catchers out there who are listening to this, who um, maybe need to do a better job of, of kind of, you know, working with their pitcher, right? Developing that relationship. How do you, how would you go about kind of teaching them? Well, that's definitely crucial to uh, a team success is that pitcher catcher relationship. Um, and I think one of the best, there's actually two guys that jump to mind right away with this. And there's other guys that are great at this, but actually I'll say three. And they're all veterans. So Buster Posey, Yadier Molina, and Salvador Perez. When you watch the way, you know, their body language, their nonverbal communication, their verbal communication, what they do immediately after getting the out, you, you see them, you know, in the dugout. Um, just, just communicating with that pitcher um, is going to be crucial to success. You know, you got to get your, uh, your pitcher comfortable with uh, – Again, I, I hesitate because sometimes the coach is calling. So if the pitch call is coming from the coach, then that, that's one thing. But if the catcher is calling in the game, we need to get our pitcher comfortable with what we call and understand, you know, I am giving you a suggestion, but it's a pretty darn good suggestion. If you stick with me, we're going to get some outs here. So you have to develop that relationship, and, and they need to understand. You know how to set up hitters. You know if, if I give a pitch, throw it there, and we're going to get this guy out. Um, you want them to know that if, if they bounce a pitch, you're going to block it for them. You're going to be there for them. Um, you need them to know that if they're struggling either mechanically or emotionally and, and mentally, you're going to be there for them. You're going to know what to say and what to do. So it's important, and it's all about the bullpen. That's going to be our, our opportunity to develop that respect from our pitchers 
and, and, and build that relationship where, you know, they're, they're spiking their curveball and you know exactly why they're spiking it. So you just tell them, Hey, make this adjustment in your mechanics. They make that adjustment and they throw it for a strike. And then you just say, Hey, I'll, I'll do this during a game. If I feel like, if I see your, your head tilting and turning, if I see you losing track of your glove side, if I see you rushing, if I see you overstriding or understriding, like you get to know each guy's mechanics. Um, and you can say during a game, if I tap my glove, like, or I tap my front shoulder or I do this head wiggle back and forth, it's a reminder for you. That's the adjustment you need to make on the last pitch. If you I saw you do this, you need to make this adjustment. Um, you need to learn what pitchers, if they're struggling, um, you know, what pitchers can you go out and kind of light their butts up? You know what I mean? Put a fire underneath them and, and, and not necessarily yell at them, but be firm with your words. Call timeout, go out there, be firm with them. And some pitchers, you're firm with them and it pumps them up and it gets them dialed and it gets them back to where you want. But you also have to understand that there's going to be pitchers where you go out there and you get firm with them, especially – you know, we could use high school or college as an example. If the catcher is an upperclassman and the pitcher is an underclassman, sometimes those underclassmen can be intimidated by that upperclassman catcher. So if you go out to someone who's already a little bit, you know, sketched out from you and you go out and you light their butts up, they're just going to tuck their tail even more and it's going to snowball and they're going to do terrible. So you have to know which kids, uh, which pitchers you can go out and, and kind of light them up a little bit and which pitchers you need to go out and pat them on the back, put your hand on your on their shoulder, calm them down. Hey, take a couple deep breaths. You're doing just fine. Here's what I'm seeing in your mechanics. This next batter up is, you know, we got him out last time with that fastball in, so let's, you know, bust him on his knuckles again. You're going to be just fine. Take a couple deep breaths, and you're good to go. So you just have to learn the personalities. You have to learn each one's mechanics. It's going to be different for all of them. You learn that during practice and bullpen time, so when they get in the game, um, you know, you, you've got that understanding and you've got that mutual respect to go out there and do your thing. Todd, that's awesome, awesome advice. Um, I love the, the giving the pitcher the clues or, you know, tapping whether on the mask or whatnot if, if, if you see something mechanically off. Um, and then just also great point about kind of the upperclassmen, underclassmen as, as well, where you really have to make sure you're careful on, on what you say to him, if you're firm or not, just based off of who he is. Um, that was incredible uh, content right there. Um, last thing I kind of want to talk to you about, which I know a lot of different coaches really want to know because they want to help out so many of their catchers, is drills. Are there certain drills that you like kind of prescribing to different catchers just across the board? You know, it's, it's actually, uh, I'm actually still doing this. I haven't even talked about a jury and I'm talking with my hands and I'm on the phone with you. So it's really, really hard to just tell you a drill versus demonstrate. Yeah. A drill. So, um, but I'll still, you know, I, I can kind of go over a few of my favorites. I will tell you this um, with the emphasis that they found the importance of receiving. Um, and this is actually a question I get not a lot, but I get quite often from both catchers and coaches is how much time should we dedicate to each skill? So basically, it's pretty simple. It comes down to what do you, what skill do you perform the most? So on the physical side of things for catchers, receiving is king. Receiving is number one. That happens the most throughout a game. You're going to receive, again, depending on the level, depending on how the game is going and your, the talent of your pitchers, you could go as many as, you know, or as few as I could say, like 50, 60 pitches in an entire game. 
upwards to 150 to 200 pitches, again, depending on how it's going, that you're actually going to be, um, you know, receiving or, or being thrown at you at least. So uh, I would actually mix in receiving work every practice. Like always start off with, we get loose, we do this, and then we go into receiving. Um, some days that might be, that's all we do. Like on Monday is receiving day. And for our hour-long defensive work time, position work time, we're just going to do receiving. We're going to do hand, wrist, and forearm strength, shoulder stability, um, pocket awareness drills, um, you know, uh, different pitch locations, whatever it is. Monday is receiving day. And then Tuesday, we kick it off with receiving and maybe do like 15 minutes of receiving. And then we dedicate a little bit of time uh, to what's next on the list, which is probably, you know, blocking, getting into blocking, um, depending on your level, could be as few as four, could be as many as 20 balls in the dirt throughout a game, but blocking is what happens the most next after receiving. So we're going to do receiving and blocking on Tuesday. Then Wednesday, I'm going to do receiving and throwing. Throwing would be third on the list, depending on the arm strength of the catcher, the speed of the pitchers, um, the coach's philosophy, game situation, we may have zero stolen base attempts in a game, or depending on the level, you might have, you know, I don't know, eight to 10 stolen bases during a game. So we need to make sure our catchers can help control the running game and at least be able to throw. So we'll, on Wednesday, we'll do receiving and throwing. Um, then on Thursday, we go back to the start, and maybe Thursday is just a receiving day, or what we can do is do receiving and then mix in some type of specialty play, like uh, maybe work on bunts that day, receiving and bunt plays, or we do receiving and plays at the place, so tag plays and fourth plays, one or the other or both. Um, and then Friday we can do receiving and go back to doing some receiving and blocking, or we can do receiving and mix in another, you know, like receiving, blocking, and then mix in pop-ups at the very end. Um, although specialty plays are rare, they only happen every once in a while, we still want our catchers to be able to perform it correctly if it happens in a game. So we can't just neglect them and never practice them. We need to make sure we're putting in the time on those as well. But receiving is paramount. Receiving is king. Receiving is number one. So I'd recommend every practice dedicating at least some time to receiving and then mixing in the other skills from there. So a little blocking one day, a little throwing with the receiving specialty plays and, and that kind of thing. So that's how I'd always recommend breaking up the defensive work. Awesome. Todd, I've learned so much from listening uh, to you talk just during this episode, and I just really appreciate your time. Uh, not like you kind of, we talked about the very beginning, you travel a lot, you do a lot. So I really appreciate you coming on the air and, and just spreading your knowledge across to uh, all the listeners out there. 100% happy to help. And I have, uh, you know, my, my summer super camp series coming up for any catches that are listening. Um, I used to just do two summer uh, super camps throughout the year. I do a summer session here where I'm from in Reno, Nevada, and then a winter session in, uh, in Florida. Um, and a lot of the feedback I was getting was, you know, we want to come to a super camp, but the travel's been too hard. There's the time of year isn't working. We're still in all stars. We're doing a travel ball tournament, whatever it is. Um, so what I've decided to do this year is I'm going to have a series of them around the country. So I have six different super camps set up. Um, starting in Atlanta in June, um, and then we're going to be in, in – uh, so we have Atlanta, we have Reno, we have Southern California, we have St. Louis, um, we have Nashville, we have the one I think I already said here in Reno, and then we wrap it up with uh, Camp in Salt Lake City. So there's a series of super camps coming. Um, 
I highly, highly recommend them. I bring in some great staff. Um, we do field sessions, working on all the skills we just discussed. We have classroom sessions, talking about understanding pitchers and pitching. Um, sometimes we do a recruiting talk. We'll have motivational speakers come, mental game topics, um, all that kind of stuff. And then we also do gym sessions where we do stuff like uh, hip mobility, flexibility, and strength, arm strength, and, and arm care, um, hand-eye coordination training. So we just we, we jump from the field to the classroom to the gym. And it's all catching um, basically all day long. So I'd love to see uh, see some of the catches out there in my super camps coming up. What's the best way for them for to sign up for that or just to get in contact with you? Uh, pretty simple. My website is thecatchingguide.com. And then, of course, through my social media. So on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, if you go to the search you know, box and just type in the catching guy, my page will pop up. So Follow me if they're not already, and uh, and then that, the the social media will always direct them to the website, thecatchingguide.com, and all my uh, events and upcoming events are listed there. Awesome. We'll make sure to um, put the link up on on the show notes page uh, for your website so they can go sign up there. Um, really appreciate again you coming on, Todd. This has been uh, been a lot a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball. Please make sure to head on over to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Helps the overall rating of the show and helps more listeners find the podcast so they can learn and grow with you as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you all next week.